Amen. This is our Good Friday service, and uh, historically, churches from all around the world have gathered together on this Sunday, on this Friday before Easter Sunday, to just slow down. We live in in, in a world in which uh, some people say, "Well, shouldn't we just think about the cross all the time?" And the answer is yes, of course. We should always think about the cross. We should always be meditating on the cross. But if we are always meditating on cross, if we're always doing that. We're never really, really exclusively focusing on that. Uh, it can lose its meaning. And so it is wise for churches to spend one single day, especially thinking about the cross and its implication in our lives and what it was about, and to, to take it in and to think about it and all of its implications for us. This Friday is a Friday evening to remember the eve of the evening Jesus died on that tree, on that cross, and it's meaning for our life. The cross is pivotal because it's the, in the Gospel of John, the cross is the hour of glory. Uh, it's the final sign. John's book is full, full of signs that Jesus is the Christ, and the cross is the final sign. It's the sign of signs. It's the, the apex where Jesus reveals his glory. The cross is a revealing time. So this evening what I want to do is talk about two things. I want to talk about how the cross reveals who we are and how the cross reveals who God is, the heart of God. Just those two things I want to think about this evening as we spend time thinking about the cross. The first thing I want to look at is how the cross reveals who we are. Here in the Gospel of John, uh, we see that there are different characters there's Pilate, who is uh, the king, who is a governor, who's treated as a king. Uh, there are crowds of Jewish, crowds of people, Jew- Jewish followers of, G- of, of God, who believe in the Old Testament. There are religious leaders. There are all kinds of characters. There are guards, Roman guards. And each of these characters in Jesus' crucifixion is a picture of our heart. It's a picture of our lives. It's a picture of who we are, humanity. Uh, And it's important that we see all of that. In verse 1, one of the early verses that we just read in chapter 19, we see the guards, the Roman guards, who are in charge of crucifying Jesus. And one of the things that we see is their callousness toward Jesus and their mockery. Chapter 19 opens with that mockery. They twist the crown of thorns and they place it on Jesus' head. They mock, bow down to Jesus. They see this broken man who, uh, who's beaten within an inch of his life, who's bleeding, who's broken, who has no followers, uh, nobody bowing down to him. So they are mocking him. They're humiliating him. You know, we live in a culture in which uh, people love to mock. Uh, we live in uh, an age of online trolling, of cyberbullying. I was reading a story this last week of a 15-year-old girl uh, who lived in Virginia. Her name was Kayla. Uh, last week, uh, reports were that she was harassed online. Students from her school uh, put on fake profiles of her, pre- pretending to be her, mocking her, ridiculing her. She said her family did not know anything, any of this was happened. And last week, she committed suicide. And the prosecutors, uh, the police vowed to prosecute anyone who participated in that harassment. 
something that happens all throughout our society. You know, you give people anonymity and you see the true selves come out, their, their racism, their hatred, their anger. You give them anonymity and a keyboard and all of that comes out, the mockery. We love to bring people down to make ourselves feel better. The hatred, the anger. And what, this, what all of these Roman officials, these Roman guards reveal to us is our heart. The anger and hatred in all of us. None of us w- want to admit to any of that. No, we, we wouldn't do that. We wouldn't mock. We wouldn't ridicule. We wouldn't say those kinds of things. But at the foot of the cross, it reveals us for who we are. Our hostility, our mockery. These Roman guards spit in the face of Jesus. They mock him. They beat him. And that's the irony of the of of this situation: is that God is the God of the universe. It's one thing to mock a fifteen year old girl, which is terrible, but imagine mocking the God of the universe, the God who created you, God of infinite power, the God of total perfect righteousness and we spit in his face and we ridicule him we mock him we put our hands on him after this mockery jesus comes before the crowd it says in verse 14 now is a day of preparation the passover is about the sixth hour he said to the jews behold your king and they cried out away with him crucify him uh it's a tradition in the first century during the passover for one prisoner to be released and Pilate floats the idea well we should release jesus because i know he's innocent and the crowd turns on jesus they say no crucify jesus and they cry out crucify crucify kill this man we want nothing to do with them. Martin Luther, he is a theologian of the Reformation. This is what he says. Take this to heart and doubt not that you are the one who killed Christ. Your sins certainly did. And when you see the nails driven through his hands, be sure that you are pounding. And when the thorns pierce his brow, know that they are your evil thoughts. Consider that if one thorn pierced Christ, you deserve 100,000. Martin Luther says in a meditation about the crucifixion of Christ, he says when you see the Roman guards pounding the nails into his hands, he says make sure you know that that's you. Make sure when you hear the people crying out for Jesus to be crucified, see your face in the crowd. I'm there. We're all complicit in that. We're all a part of that. John Stott talks about the essence of what sin is. And he says this, the essence of sin is we human beings substituting ourselves for God. Well, the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. We put ourselves where only God deserves to be. God put himself where we deserve to be. Uh, Stott says that God should be, be the one condemning us. The righteous, holy God should be condemning sinners. But he says at the cross, it's unrighteous sinners condemning and destroying a righteous and holy king. 
He says everything's been flipped. Everything's reverse. Sinful man. That we are angry at the righteous God. We say to God, God, you have no rights. Uh, How dare you do what you do? And we, we dethrone Christ. We mock him. One of the things that the, uh, the, uh, the guards are doing is that they're gambling for his clothing. It's the sin- fulfillment of the scripture. And one of the ideas of that is that something sacred and powerful and sacrificial is happening. And these Roman guards, they are playing cards. They're playing poker. They're gambling. They're laughing. They're making, they're making light of a death. The death of the king, the death of the Messiah. And it speaks to how, how we trivialize Jesus, how we trivialize his death. We forget it. It's nothing to us. It's a game. It's not important. It's not sacred. It's not meaningful. Uh, what, what does the, the cross reveal all of us? It reveals all of our shallowness, our anger, our hatred our idolatry. It reveals the ugliness. One of the things the cross does to us, it it tells us that we are not the people who we think we we are. We're not the people that we project to other people that we are. That there is a great depth of wickedness in every single human heart. And that we're so far, we're so far from God. We're so far that we need the death of God himself to make us right. Right? Uh, the cross reveals us for who we are. But here's the good news. This is the second, second thing, second and final thing. The cross reveals the, the, the beauty of God, the love of God. It reveals God for who he is. Jesus, as he comes before uh, Pilate to be tried, one of the things that we see is that he's silent. You know, he's being tried unjustly. He's being accused of things he had never done. Uh, and in face of that, he's silent. He doesn't say anything. Pilate is perplexed by this. He, he repeatedly goes to Jesus and say, says, Jesus, don't you know your life's at stake? Why aren't you defending yourself? I can let you go. I can free you. I can clear you. Uh, Isaiah 53, 7 says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is before a shear is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus quietly, voluntarily, willfully takes that suffering. He is silent before his accusers. Right at the, uh, John's Gospel tells us Jesus says three things from the cross. Let's take them in order. In John 19, Verse 26 to 27, it says that Jesus, he first takes up his cross. He takes up a a large cross beam and he carries it up a hill. He he carries it to the place of his execution. And there, very matter-of-factly, one of the things I want you to know about John's gospel is that he's not melodramatic about it. He doesn't talk about the sweat or the tears or the pain of Jesus physically. He just states that he is crucified. We don't see the nails going into Jesus' hands. We don't see Jesus stumbling upon the cross. It's not melodramatic at all. 
We simply hear the words of Jesus on that cross. The first word is verse 26. He says, it says, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciples whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciples, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciples took her to his own home. One of the things that, the first thing that Jesus says, and it seemingly uh, doesn't fit the context, uh, think about Jesus, he's beaten within an inch of his life, he's struggling to breathe, he's, he's moments away from his death, and he feels the curse of God, the anger of God, and the first thing Jesus wants to take care of is he wants to take care of his mother. What's Jesus doing? Jesus knows that he's not going to be here anymore. So he says to John, the beloved disciple, the author of the Gospel of John, and he says to John, John, take care of my mother like she's your mother. Take her into your home. He says to his mother, John, John's going to be your son, your, your oldest son. John will take care of you. What is Jesus thinking about as he gets to the cross? Not himself. Not his pain. Uh, not the humiliation. He's thinking about his mother. Uh, and it shows us the heart of Jesus. That he is finishing his earthly obligation to be a son to his mother. And that's what he's doing. Secondly, the second word of Jesus is in verse 28. It says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture I thirst. Uh, Jesus in the Gospel of John is always operates on two levels. Uh, Jesus is not saying I am physically thirsty. We know that because he never complains about uh, being the nails, the agony of his nails. He never, he's never complaining about his physical distress in any of the Gospels, any of the four Gospels. And we know that in the Gospel of John, thirst is metaphorical. It's deeper and it's spiritual. A couple weeks ago, we looked at the, the uh, John chapter 4, where Jesus talks to a woman at the well. And he talks about thirst and he talks about water. In John 4, verse 13, he says, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. In the Gospel of John, water is metaphorical. It's this idea of this everlasting satisfaction that comes from God the Father. That being with God is the greatest joy. It's a fountain. It's life. So when Jesus says, I thirst, what he's saying is that my greatest joy, my greatest life-giving pleasure is being taken away from me. Jesus is saying, I am at the cross experiencing hell, which is the absence of God, which is the, not the pleasure of God, but the anger of God. That's being poured out on me right now. I thirst. My body and my spirit is evaporating. I'm beginning to feel the anger of God. And the idea of the cross is that Jesus took Jesus thirsted on the cross. He took the anger and wrath of God so that he can give us the water of life, so that we can experience that living water, that well, that fellowship with God. Psalm 22, Jesus says, uh, Jesus is quoted, quote Psalm 22 on the cross. 
And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's the idea that Jesus is cursed. He's experiencing hell on the cross. His greatest delight was his father. And on the cross, he's experiencing his absence and the terror of his wrath and anger poured out upon him. And that is the thirst that Jesus experienced. The final word on the cross is this in verse 30. The final thing that John records Jesus saying is, it is finished. That Greek word is the word tetelestai. It means it's done. It's over. In that Greek, it's the aorist tense, which means once and for all. It's done absolutely, totally, finally, once and for all. Uh, At the cross, Jesus finally and completely accomplished his mission, which was to save and rescue his people. Jesus is saying, I have completed absolutely the task that was given to me. I've accomplished salvation from beginning A to the Z. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. At the cross, Jesus totally completed salvation for you. There's nothing left for you to do except to believe it. At the cross, Jesus finished and completed salvation. Uh, You know, it's reported that um, Buddha, before he died, his last words to his followers were, strive without ceasing. Buddha says the last word to his disciples was, keep on, keep on striving. Don't quit. Don't stop. Jesus' last word on the cross is, it's done. You don't have to work anymore. I've completed salvation for you totally, absolutely, perfectly. All that is left for you to do is simply believe and receive it. That's all you... Salvation is not about achieving, it's about receiving. It's not about what we are to do, but accepting the fact that Jesus has done it in our place, in our stead. The gospel is this good news that we don't have to work anymore for our salvation. You know, there's always a sense in which uh, things in our life are never finished. If you have a job, there's more stuff to do. After you you, uh, finish your work on Friday evening, uh, no matter how much work you do, there's more work on Monday morning. No matter what you do, no matter how much you accomplish, there's more stuff to accomplish. No matter how many medals and awards, no matter where you get in life, there's always someone who's going to be doing more than you. There's always someone who's going to be outworking you, outachieving you, with more accomplishments than you have, and you feel like you've got to keep doing it, you've got to keep working, you've got to keep measuring up. But guess what happens in the gospel? The gospel is like, you don't need to work anymore. He's, he's got it. And all I need to do now is rest in his work, his finished work. That's good news. I don't need to work for my salvation. Jesus at that cross, he has finished it. He's done it. And all I need to do now is rest. Jesus lived the life you should have lived. And he died the death you should have died. And in him, I am completely, perfectly accepted by God. The gospel is the good news that the first point is that though we're sinners and we're so, there's evil and hatred and sin in us, yet at the cross we are forgiven, we are accepted, 
we are declared righteous. We are brought into the family of God, the fellowship of God. And we stand in him absolutely, perfectly complete. All you need is need. All you need is nothing. All you need is to believe. As we close, I just want to close with two applications then. As we think about the cross and all that God is for us, just two kind of perspectives or applications. One is this. The first application is uh, the cross shows us how it rearranges how we view life. You know, when you think about uh, the cross, you saw a bloodied uh, man with no followers being mocked, ridiculed. He's beaten within an inch of his life. He's crucified between two common thieves. And to everyone, it seemed like that was a terrible thing. It seemed like a terrible ending to the story. It seemed so meaningless. But what God was doing there was God was rescuing his people. What to so many people seemed was ugly. Now we, for countless generations, we celebrate this as the most beautiful, profound moment in human history. And it teaches us to look at our own lives differently. Your life right now might seem like a mess. We've been looking at this theme of mess to masterpiece. Your life might seem like it's spinning out of control. People are abusing you. People are looking down on you. You've made some bad decisions in your life, and it seems like a mess. But the cross teaches us to reevaluate how we see our lives. Maybe that's where God is at work in your life. Maybe God is using that mess to be a masterpiece. Maybe God is doing a profound thing. The cross reshapes not only how we see ourselves, but secondly and finally, it reshapes how we look at other people. John Stott, he says this, to understand why Jesus had to die, it's important to remember both the result of the cross, costly forgiveness of sins, and the pattern of the cross, the reversal of the world's values. On the cross, neither justice nor mercy loses out. Both are fulfilled at once. Jesus' death was necessary if God was going to take justice seriously and still love us. Stott says that the cross represents God's justice and mercy being both simultaneously accomplished. But he says the cross is also a pattern for viewing the world. He says it's a pattern uh, because it's a reversal of the world's values. I want to close with that thought. You know, in our society, we think that the blessed people are beautiful, they're successful, they're good-looking, they have a whole lot of accomplishments, they're applauded by so many people. Those are the people that we should envy, emulate, and lift up. But the cross says, no, that's a, the cross reverses the values of our current culture. It says, no. You know, the people that God may be blessing the most may be the most broken the outsider, the misfit, the person who is down on their luck. And maybe these are the people that God loves. Maybe the broken are actually the beautiful. Maybe in the midst of the mess of people's lives, God is doing something profound. And the calling of God's people is not to emulate the world's value and to chase after that beauty and that success. But it reverses the value system that, no, now I lift up the broken. Now I see someone who, when they're going through some hard times, I believe that God may be profoundly at work, that most broken, maybe they are the most sacred. And it 
and it causes us to have cruciform lives. Lives that see God in the most broken places. And the ugliest things, God is doing something profoundly beautiful. The cross reminds us of a God who loves the broken, who loves those who are very far away, because those are the people that Christ died for. And it helps us to reevaluate my life. I might condemn myself and I might feel so ashamed and so alone, but to know, no, God, you love me. You do not forsake me. I am your beloved and I am your masterpiece. I am someone that, God, you are profoundly at work in. Would the cross reshape you? Would the cross lift up the glory of God and the love of God and the beauty of God? And will we seek to emulate that in our daily life? Please join me in prayer. Father, we give you thanks. Lord, you are not like us and you're not like this world. When we think about the cross, we think about how callous so many people were at that foot of the cross. They're playing games. They dismissed you. They spit on you. And we think about how this world and our culture dismisses you and mocks you. They mock your followers. And Father, we we know that there's so many people who are blind to your beauty and your truth. Pray, God, that this morning, this, this evening, like Mary, at the, at the foot of the cross, she saw in that death the Savior of the world. And I pray, God, that we, you would give us an open eyes to see your love for us, that we would see, uh, that we would emulate the cross in our daily lives, that the cross is a subversion of this world's values. Teach us to see like you see. Teach us to love like you loved, but also help us to feel your love this evening. Pray for people this evening who might feel very condemned, that they would feel that on that tree, you forgave them. Pray that the chains would fall off. Pray that the shame would disappear. Pray that we would feel free. Pray now as we go to this time of communion that you would take these elements and at this communion that we experience profound intimacy with you. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, d- during this time, we are, we are also going to take communion. Before Jesus went to the cross, one of his last acts was to take his disciples in a room and to have a Passover meal with them. But this Passover meal had one thing missing, and that was the lamb. And Jesus is saying at this meal, he's the lamb. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. At the last table, Jesus says something important. He says, take and eat. And that echoes the statement in Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve, they're tempted by the serpent. The serpent says to Adam and Eve, take and eat. And Jesus at the final table He says, take and eat as well. But he subverts what the devil says and what the fall does. He says that it took one moment for Adam and Eve to rebel and for all humanity to fall. But it took Jesus all of his life and his righteousness to undo that work. 
Communion is, is coming close to Christ. It's coming, remembering that sacrifice and entering into that story. Communion rem- helps us to remember that we, we do this together as a family. Uh, one of the things that the cross does, it, it rearranges our relationships. We talked about Mary and John. They weren't blood relatives, but the cross rearranges our, our relationships. So at the foot of the cross, other Christians are our brother, our sister, our mother, our father. As we come to this table, we come as a family. It's a family table. We remember that Jesus, he bridges all the gaps in our lives, in our relationships, that he is our king. He brings us together at this table. Please then join me in prayer as I set aside these elements. Father, thank you for the wine and the bread. And now as we come to this table, pray that we would come as your people, hungry, thirsty. Pray that this would be a profound moment of entering into your presence. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke the bread and he says, take and eat, this is my body, broken for you. He also took the wine and poured it out and he said, drink of it, all of you. This is the blood of my covenant. It's poured out for the forgiveness of many sins. If you're taking communion this evening, please take a piece of the bread, dip it either in the juice or the wine and use this time to remember Christ our King. We're also, um, I'm going to invite up Tam also during this time. She's going to be reading from Isaiah 53 as we take of communion together. So, so please uh, use this time to, to take of the communion and enter into this presence, the story of Christ. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised.